0: You know, one of the uh, prerequisites for really getting the most out of uh, any local church is being able to worship not only as a group, but also being able to hear a personal message. And so I have such a personal message for the driver of a white Accord license plate H2V51I. Your lights are on. Before we begin, let's, uh, let's go all the way from the parking lot, clear across the world, and let's play, pray for uh, the troops in the Middle East, okay? Would you bow with me? Lord, we're here because men and women are willing to allow us to be the benefactors of their efforts We have a long history of courage and bravery of people who would defend um, free people against tyrants. We fully acknowledge that we have been um, not always in the right in our fighting. But rather than trying to approach the questions of, of, uh, in the long view, who's right and wrong, we want to become more personal we want to pray for the men and women in, in the Middle East who are now drawing close to you. It has been said that there are no atheists in a foxhole. And I suspect there are none when, when they hear the air raid sirens or uh, there are none when uh, it's time to fly or when they contemplate ground movement. And we would pray, Lord God, that you would pull all Of those people close to you personally and let them feel your direct um, influence and your direct personhood on their lives. Let them make a personal um, commitment to you. We would pray that we would follow you this morning Lord but we would pray also that all the people of the world would come to know your son Jesus Christ and the love that he offers. We pray not only for Christians, but we pray for Buddhists and Hindus and and uh, uh, Muslims and and uh, Jews and and Christians that all man-made religions would come someday to the knowledge of your personal love and what you offer in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. We are on a 10-year journey. Uh, None of this 30 days to a new you stuff here. Um, We are on a journey to spiritual maturity. And the first phase of that spiritual maturity, the first trimester of this year, is given to going over the first mile of Christianity. If we are going on to the second mile of Christianity, what must we have in our first mile? Even to get us to the place of spiritual maturity. And the first thing we said was we must have the willingness to revise our picture of who God is. The first commandment is that, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And all of us have a tendency to caricature God and to have a narrow, small picture of Him rather than continuing to learn who He really is and who He really wants to be in our lives. That's the first mile of Christianity, to be able to say, no, teach me more of who you are. Secondly, first mile of Christianity is the capacity and the willingness and the discipline to read the scriptures for yourself. Until you do that, you are only hearing about God and you are not hearing from God. And so therefore, we can't even talk about Second Mile Christianity until we have the capacity to take directly into ourselves the Word of God, having been taught by the Holy Spirit what it means. And just as we have a doctrine of God that needs revision, and a doctrine of the Scriptures that we need, needs revision. Last year, last week we talked about a doctrine of man, specifically about original sin. And we talked about we are not sinners because we sin; we sin because we're sinners. In other words, it is not a behavioral problem; it is not a behavioral aberration; it is a distortion in our very nature. The doctrine is original sin. Colloquially, it is known as being a boogerhead. All of us have been boogerheads since the time we were this high. I've never met a kid who wasn't totally self-centered, totally selfish, and a boogerhead. Now, when we grow up, we don't call ourselves boogerheads, we call ourselves jerks. And so, we're all jerks. Stupid jerks. Sometimes we don't mean to be jerks, but we're jerks. And we don't do jerky things... We are jerks. So therefore, when you come to recognition of the fact that you're a jerk and I'm a jerk and all God's children are jerks, (laughs) we get on down the line to the second mile. Now, this Sunday, I want you to work with me intellectually, okay? Because I'm going to be giving you three things that I believe that you ought to know about the cross. God's antidote to sin. And I want you to know them so well that you can explain them to someone else. Now, let me just give a little word here. We have begun our Saturday evening and Monday evening uh, congregations. And the tremendous advantage to Sunday morning people is if you hear a word on Sunday morning that someone you know needs, if God puts somebody on your heart, you can bring them back on Sunday night or Monday night at 7 o'clock and they can hear this. All right? there are a lot of people that have not the foggiest notion why Christ had to go to the cross. Why couldn't God just forgive us for crying out loud? Why does somebody have to die for it? If you have ever known anybody like that, or had that question yourself, then this is a valuable uh, message. Okay. First of all, let me give you three different views of the atonement of Christ. And three different ways in which it helped us. And then I will try to give you categorizations of churches that specifically major in these particular views and why all of us need to have all three views in order to have a complete picture. First of all, Christ as the substitute. Christ as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Augustine, St. Augustine, first exegeted this view from Scripture. And then later on, Anselm filled it out. And then later on, John Calvin and the Reformers um, um, put it into even more legal terms. In this view, God is seen as having a primary nature of order-keeping in the universe. This is the most objective of all views. Right is right and wrong is wrong. God is seen as having a primary objective of having a standard that must not be transgressed. It is the most legalistic of all the views. God's primary concern with us is that if the standard is transgressed and we get away with it, not only will the standard have no deterrent factor in the the future, we will be ruined. And so therefore, it is not just a matter of maintaining a legal standard. It is a matter of keeping the integrity of the standard of God, the integrity of the order of the universe intact. Now, when that standard is broken, and all of us have broken that standard, the Bible says all have fought, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When that standard of, of is broken, the wages, the result is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 So therefore, We have a problem. God doesn't have a problem in this view. We have a problem. Now God, in a contingent fashion, desires to help us out. But there's a real problem. If he just winks and says, I forget about sin, he gives a misunderstanding of the radical devastation of sin in our lives and we are the poorer for it. So he cannot do that. God is the only one that can forgive our sins, and the only one that can... Well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. If we transgress, then one of two actions need to be need, need to be taken place. Either we need to be punished in order to, to reveal how important uh, righteousness is, or he needs to have satisfaction. Remember that old, those old movies where somebody got their honor insulted, you know? And they'd take out their gloves and say, Sir, I demand satisfaction. Well, that's kind of the picture of God in the substitutionary um, theory of the atonement. That God, we owe God satisfaction because not only are His legal standards transgressed, but His honor is insulted. And therefore, we need to pay Him back. Now, how are we going to pay Him back? We can't. You know, why not? Because we already owe God everything we have and therefore we can't just come to him and say God I will pay you back by being better because we already owe him being better and if we are in an indebtedness morally there's no way we can make it up if we could be twice as good as we are right now we already owe being twice as good to God you see so therefore God is the only one who can pay back what he needs because we've got nothing left over and we're the only ones who owe what he needs. And therefore, Anselm wrote in *Cur Deus Homo, Why God Man? God must become man in order to make that payment. Now, there are two requirements for this. Number one... This becoming of man, this man must remain sinless. Because if this God in human form sinned, then he would already be behind the Eight Bowl too, you see, and not be able to make it up. So he must be sinless. Secondly, he must do it on a voluntary basis. Because if it is all mechanistic, if it is just God coming down paying his own sin, see, then he should have just winked at it and forgot it in the first place. So it can't be a mechanical thing. It must be voluntary. It must be someone who does not have to do it, but who chooses to do it. Now let me just read a few scriptures for you out of the New Testament that talk about this sacrifice of Christ. In Hebrews 9, uh, 14, it sums it up. And he's talking to a group of people who are used to a sacrificial and legalistic view of our sinfulness. Those who offered sacrifices that just supposedly appeased God for a short period of time and appeased His wrath. And then he contrasts Christ. And he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, now listen to this phrase, offered Himself, you hear the voluntariness? He offered himself. God didn't do it. He didn't require it. Christ offered himself without blemish, sinlessness, to God. See? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Another passage is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, in, in the verse right before it, talks about Christ. And though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, one more. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now in this picture, what Christ has done on the cross is to erase all of our indebtedness by a sacrifice of himself. It's a legal transaction. And therefore, something very objective has happened in our lives and those people who follow Jesus Christ. They are in a totally different status as far as God's concerned. Um, I had a a preacher one time tell me a story of a dream that he had had. And he said, in this dream, he was the defendant in a courtroom, and the judge judge was sitting behind the bench, and the judge had one of these all-knowing looks, and he looked at this guy... And this guy immediately knew that this judge knew he was guilty, and he knew he was guilty. And this tremendous defense attorney that he had kept pleading for him, you know? But he knew he was guilty. He was trying to keep quiet. He was trying to hide it. But he knew that the judge knew he knew his goose was cooked, and he was suffering. He was suffering. And he said, at the end of that, at the end of a period of time, The defense attorney went off into jail to serve his sentence for what he had done. And the judge picked up the gavel and looked directly at him and said, not guilty. It's exactly the substitutionary theory of the atonement. It's exactly what John Calvin and what Anselm and what Augustine said. That in a very objective manner, God accepted the life of Christ as a substitute for what we owed Him. Now there's something human in us that cries out and it says, well, God shouldn't have to do that. He should think of another way. Surely, an innocent man should not have to suffer. And surely, God doesn't have the right to take an innocent man. God didn't take the life of an innocent man. An innocent man who was God volunteered for it. And you know what? It really doesn't matter in this theory how we feel at all. We have such a populist view in this country. I mean, in a democracy, you do. Whatever the majority thinks must be right. I remember reading a, uh, a story recently. George Will has a, has a book out called Men at Work. There's a story in that book about Babe Pinelli, who was one of the uh, great umpires of all time. It's the umpire back in Babe Ruth's time. Now, you will remember, if you're a baseball fan, that Babe Ruth was not only the home-run king, but he was also the strikeout king. And so one day, Babe's up to bat. The count's three and two. Babe Pinelli is back at the plate. Ruth is up to bat. 40,000 people in the stands, which was a big crowd back then. Three and two. Here comes the pitch. It zings in. And the umpire says, strike three, you're out! And the whole crowd goes, Oh, no! Babe Ruth turns around and tries the populist argument. He says, you got to be kidding. 40,000 people thought that was a ball. Babe Pinelli pulls himself up to all the stature of a Supreme Court justice and says, Maybe so, but mine's the only opinion that counts. God's world is like that. It doesn't matter what we think, because His is the only opinion that counts. Now, many churches emphasize this kind of legal substitutionary theory. And they, they emphasize the forgiveness and the justification of our lives. Of course, business is business. Presbyterians do this. You know? You got you had sin? The counts. You know, are now equal because of, because you yeah, had the debits and the credits and the, you know, everything's equal now because of Jesus Christ. That's business. The Romans, the Roman Catholics think of this. The Episcopalians, uh, emphasize this version. Um, the, uh, um, Adventists emphasize this. People of a Jewish background emphasize this. People who come from a legal standpoint emphasize this. And what this view does is it shows us the very sovereignty of God and how he has the perfect right to do anything he wants. However, if it stands alone, it doesn't tell the whole picture. Let me give you another view of the atonement. It's the Christus Victor view. Irenaeus was a second century bishop of Lyon. Irenaeus looked at uh, Jesus Christ in a different way. He said, in Christ, there is a recapitulation of all of men, all of mankind. That is to say, that just as all died in Adam, it says that in Romans, all gain life through Christ. Just as Adam was a prototype or paradigm for all of us in our natural state, so Jesus Christ is a prototype or paradigm for all of us in how we can be in living a spiritual victory. Now, let me explain this to you. He said, well, just as Adam was confronted with Satan in the garden and paradise was not enough, and so men and women at that time began to look in places other than God for satisfaction and for power Just as they did that, so too, when Jesus Christ began his ministry, he was led out into a wilderness. And whereas a paradise was not enough for natural man, a wilderness was enough for spiritual man. He was content. Even though he had physical hunger, he had enough spiritually. And when Satan came to him and said... I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. Now something happened in that particular moment to the kingdoms of evil. Something happened, not just personally, but cosmologically, to the structure of the universe. Because evil was broken permanently. Permanently. Not that it would never again try, it always tries. The Bible itself says that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. So he didn't go away. But he was defeated forever. It is living the victory that here is important. And Jesus is the one who on the cross breaks the power of the structure of sin. See? Now that's very important for people who live day in and day out in great discouragement, saying, "I don't know that I can ever overcome this," because the answer is yes, you can. You're stronger. Let me tell you some of the churches who who uh, use this kind of thing. Uh, it's all revival church, holiness churches love this, and it is fun to get revved up. You ever watch Dwight Thompson on TV, or one of those one of those camptown preachers? You know, they just they just start out slow, you know. And then they just rev you up until you feel like you can take on the world. And there are some of us who love to be angry. Isn't that right? There are many of us who are hurt, and so therefore we get angry. Anger is a secondary emotion. And when you're hurt, you get mad. And so because we have been hurt in life, we like to watch somebody who will rev us up and get us ready for battle. Now, there's nothing wrong with spiritual battle. We will spend the second trimester here concentrating on spiritual battle. But I want to give you a warning here. There is a vast difference between a war that concentrates on vicarious violence and and, uh, um, um, feeling good by destroying things, you know, the Rambo thing. Christ was not Rambo. And we cannot get the same goodies we can get from watching a Rambo movie in spiritual warfare. When we talk about spiritual warfare, we talk about it much like the troops supposedly are doing right now. We talk about a job, military strikes, cutting off the the sources of Satan's power, uh, uh, devastating the the supply lines of how he feeds um, his forces against us and so on. It's a business. Because if you concentrate too much on spiritual warfare, you are so preoccupied with Satan, you forget about God. You were not put down here to defeat Satan. That is not your job. You were put down here to do the will of God. Pure and simple. Now, Satan loves for us to get all tied up in spiritual warfare and concentrate on him because he becomes a... A uh, uh, distraction for us, and we can become so preoccupied with the problems of life and the negativities of life that we never fulfill our purpose. Let me tell you a story I told you the other night um, um, in, a, in a talk out at a school someplace. When I was uh, when I was in high school, I played football and I played defense and offense. On offense, I played line, which shows you about how big our team was. <laughs> and This one game, I can remember facing Stan Arnold, who was an All-State tackle, 267 pounds. And I went to the coach, I said, what am I going to do? He said, I got problems of my own, you figure it out. (laughs) Great coaching. So I go up to the line, I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to push this guy around. I mean, he is huge. And I go up the line. And his, he's just big. I mean, his cheeks are hanging out of his helmet and all that kind of stuff. And I look across the line and I said, Hey, Arnholt, you're a fat slob. He got as red as I've ever seen anybody get. It looked like his helmet was going to blow off his head. He came shooting across that line and beat me to a pulp. And I went back, back to the huddle for the next play. And they called an exploit and I went up to the line. <laughs> and I he said, Hey Arnold, your mother that fat? <laughs> oh, he was furious. He just all night long he pounded me into the ground. However, he did not have the slightest interest in tackling the ball carrier. <laughs> Didn't matter didn't matter. Well, now look. I want to tell you, Satan does the same thing. You know, if we could spend all of our time beating Satan into the ground and fighting these spiritual battles, we won't spend any time on building up the kingdom of God and encouraging people and doing what people need done in their lives. Because we'll be out fighting evil all the time, see? Well... Christ is victor. Very important. In in Scripture, let me just give you a few, a few Scriptures for that, too. In, in Scripture, of course, uh, Jesus says in, in Matthew 20, 28, He says, I came to give myself as a ransom for many. And that ransom, of course, is paid to someone who holds you captive. And before you come to Christ, you are held captive by Satan. I mean, there's no way you are ever left alone or ever live free to live a life that you want to live all of you who have come to Christ have experienced that feeling of captivity I can't help myself I keep doing this again and again and again and again you're you're captive Christ came to give himself as a ransom for you Um, in Luke 10 the results of that are this that the 70 return with joy after Christ sends them out to minister and they say Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus said to them, "I was watching. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you." And then in Hebrews chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen, just one more. It says this. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he, they're talking about God, likewise also partake of the same, that is, came down in flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now look. God has broken Satan. He will continue to try to influence you, to try to intimidate you. But please don't spend more time on him than you have to. There are certain strongholds all of us have in our lives, and we need to do spiritual battle. We'll talk about that again more during the summer months. And there are times we love to get revved up. I love to listen to my kids' Christian music. They they play Petra. And there are there are, you know, there are songs on there that says, This means war, you know, and you go, yeah. And there's a song I love called Get on Your Knees and Fight Like a Man. Isn't that great? I love that song. But, he must be dispensed with expeditiously because your life is more than messing with Satan. You were put on this earth for a purpose that is much deeper and much higher than messing around with evil. Okay, let me tell you the third one then. The third one is is more given not in holiness churches, but in more liberal churches, and that is Christ as our example. Now, the one of the first uh, uh, proponents of this particular view of the cross was Peter Abelard, who was a scholastic in the Middle Ages, and then later, probably the uh, the uh, um, most exquisite and articulate. Uh, proponent was a man named Horace Bushnell, who was a 19th century preacher and theologian. And they looked at Christ as God who voluntarily came down to suffer for us. This theory is built upon the efficacy or the effectiveness of suffering and what that means in our life. When we sing, You did not wait for me to draw near to you, but you clothe yourself in frail humanity. We are are singing about the moral influence. Now let me contrast this with with one of the doctrines we just talked about. There is the substitutionary theory that is almost totally objective. Yep, business is business. If you believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You've got a clear slate. Go do what you need to. But this is over on the other end that's almost totally subjective. Because it says that not only is sin falling short of a certain standard, but in Bushnell's mentality, sin was a closure of our spirits to the inflowing righteousness of God. And so therefore, it is not just how is your account doing, but what power do you have to live in the inflowing righteousness of God. And if your heart is not broken, if your heart is not opened up to that, then you have not truly fathomed what the cross has done in your life. It is important to note that part of sin is hardness and obstinacy. Most of you, I think, if I know you correctly, are very strong people. Very strong people. And God hardly ever Breaks a strong, competent person by loading on more law. When you were kids, let me ask you this question. When you were kids and somebody told you to do something and gave it to you as an order, were you glad to do it? Most of us said, no. And the stronger they got, you will do this. Most of us said, I won't do this. Why? Because we are strong willed, the Bible calls us stiff necked people. And the more the order comes down, the stronger we get against it. I had somebody in my office about a month ago who was a very strong individual. And he said, I just want God to tell me what to do for crying out loud. If He tells me what to do, I'll do it, you know? And I said, Man, you know yourself. You know if God tells you what to do, you will have your way of doing that. What God's doing is wearing you down enough that you're ready to do it His way. That's what God does with strong people. It's not a another order that really benefits us. It's the fact that we can be broken enough to want to do it God's way. I can remember my mom telling me that, it was, that she was the most strong-willed person. I was the most strong-willed person she had ever seen By the same token, I knew she was the most strong-willed person I'd ever seen. She was a 90-pound tiger. She could have taken on the world. And I loved her for her strength, but I hated her strength. But I imitated her strength, see. But I can remember one day, and the more she'd tell me to do something, the less I'd want to do it. Therefore, she had all the force in the world, and sometimes she could force me to do things, but not on the inside, you know. Sit down. I'll sit down, but I'm standing up on the inside, you know. One day, though, she came to me. And she said, Joey, <clears throat> she was raising my sister and myself alone. She said, I'm sorry I yelled at you the other day. She said, I've, I've got to remain strong, but I don't feel strong. I feel like I'm blowing it. I feel like I am weak. I feel like I'm just not doing a very good job. And I'm sorry. Everything in me Melted. Immediately, I would have stormed the gates of hell with a squirt gun for that woman at that particular moment. You know why? Because we respect strength, but we connect at weakness. There's something about vulnerability that opens us up and connects us. There's something that draws us in. God knew that. And so... He came down in a weakened fashion. Not because He just wanted our obedience, but because He wanted our hearts. He knows what sin has done to us. He knows how closed we are. And so therefore, His battle is not just with will, but with persuasion. His call is not just for behavior, but for willingness. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Do you understand the difference between that and the substitutionary theory? If you think about what Christ did for you, God did for you in Christ, it will have an effect on your life. And you realize that Christ is not just an additive. The cross is not just something that enhances your life. It's the place where your life begins because of that connection with God. Bob Evans, I saw Bob coming in. I think he's in his service. Came in a few weeks ago. I love when you guys talk theology with me. Bob just came in and said, I want to talk some ideas I've had here. And one of them I had never heard before, but it's affected me. I don't know that it's theologically correct, and we couldn't figure out how it worked out because God never loses control of the universe, never loses his sovereignty. But God said, I always picture Christ on the cross as being totally abandoned, not because God could not look upon Christ, His bearing the sins of the world. I'm not sure that that theory has ever held much weight with me either. I mean, there are many people who say, the reason Jesus cried, why hast thou forsaken me? is because God turned away because He couldn't bear to look on sins. He's been looking on sins for centuries because He's been looking on His people. But Bob said, you know what I picture? I picture that... For just a moment in time, that the reason Jesus had to cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? is because he looked out and there wasn't any Father. Because at that one instant, all of God was in his heart, suffering for all of us. The cross is not just an option it's the beginning of a life and it's worth following with all of our life where it's not worth paying attention to at all would you pray with me God thank you for all that you did on the cross that is so shallow and so stupid and so inadequate but so am I. So the best I can say on behalf of all of us is thank you. We will come to you for the forgiveness of our sins, for the victory that you have won, and for the heart that broke for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.